I'd already agreed and or we were already signing paper and I already was handing over money. And I really, really wanted a camping trailer for my family. I'd been saving for it. Just was already visualizing the ways I could, you know, pimp it up and, you know, fix it up and, and the camping trips. But something just felt wrong. It just mm. felt wrong. And I overrode that. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. That mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to the tools you need to create, grow, and protect your wealth. Go to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com right now to claim your spot. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Dr. Robert Glover. Robert, are you ready to join the mission? <laughs> Andrew, I'm already having a good time just listening to, to that introduction. <laughs> yes, I, I've been practicing my radio voice, so... All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Dr. Robert Glover, coach, speaker, and educator, is a relationship expert with over 40 years of professional experience. The author of the groundbreaking No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Glover, has helped thousands of men and women worldwide get what they want in love, sex, and life. Oh, my goodness. Tell us a little bit about the unique value you are bringing to this world. Oh man, I, I feel like I gotta I gotta work on my radio voice. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Oh, you know, I don't know. I can say here's the exact thing. I'm making a difference in the world. I get emails from people every day saying, Dr. Glover, thank you. Thank you for writing your books. Thank you for doing what you do. You've changed my life. You saved my life. You've been following me around for years. And you know, I like knowing that I make a difference. I get emails from People saying, Robert, you're like the good father I never had. You're the good mentor I've always wanted. And I like knowing that. I like knowing that I make people's lives better through what I teach and what I write and the work that I do. That's, you know, such a great feeling. I'm, and for the audience out there, you've written this great book. You've got almost 8,000 reviews on Amazon. You've got a 4.6, I think, out of five or so on average. That is tremendous you're obviously adding a lot of value, but I want to ask you, why did you write that book anyways? What was it that spurred you to do that? Now we're doing a normal type interview for me. This is what I talk bit. about a lot. Like I said, I've been looking forward to this interview because you're, you're going to take me way out of my comfort zone. You know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a recovering nice guy. I grew up believing if I just treat everybody well, avoid conflict, do the right thing, then I'll be liked and loved and get my needs met and have a nice, smooth, problem-free life. And a couple of years into my second marriage, I realized that something's wrong with this plan. It's not working right. So short story, my second wife said, you need to go get help because mm -hmm. I'd rather be married to a jerk because at least a jerk, you know, treats me bad all the time. You treat me nice and then you don't. And then I don't. Anyway, so I, I went to therapy to find out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife love me more and mm -hmm. be in a better mood and be happier. And luckily, I found some really good materials. Now, I was already a therapist myself. I already had a right. PhD in marriage and family therapy. 
And I, I started learning about boundaries and honesty and self-care and vulnerability and transparency and just, just a lot of good tools mm. that let me show up in the world and in relationship, you know, more authentically. And then so I started noticing a lot of the men coming to me for therapy with a wife or girlfriend often or sometimes on their own were saying the same things I was saying. I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I give her everything she wants. I'll do anything to make her happy, but it's never enough. It's never good enough. She's never happy and she never wants to have sex anymore. And I thought I can finish her sentences for them. So I started mm -hmm. 25 years ago, maybe a little bit, maybe almost 30 years ago, started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And we met every other Wednesday night. And I dedicated my Wednesdays to just start writing. And I never perceived of myself as a writer, and I didn't set out to write a book. But I, in hindsight, I've always written to, mm. to express myself. So I just started writing, I guess, chapters of just stuff I was learning. How how did we, what is the nice guy paradigm? What's wrong with it? How did we get it? What works better? How do we more effectively get what we want in love and sex and life? Mm. And I just, I just kept writing, just almost just kind of free associating. And I had kind of a scientist mind. And so, you know, I'm inquisitive and I want to know and understand things. And probably a lot of the way, same way you approach finance and helping to educate people around finances. So I just kept writing. And then these guys and their wives and girlfriends kept saying, Robert, you should write a book. You should go on Oprah. This could be a bestseller. There's a lot of people that need this. So I did for a period of six, seven years. I kept writing, went through about three different revisions. So I got really comfortable with, with what it looked like, found an agent, mm -hmm. and then took another three years to find a publisher. And publishers kept saying, I mean, a lot of editors at big houses said, Robert, I like your books, good books, well written, but, and they all had the same but. <laughs> Our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book, especially one that tells them they're losers. Now, <laughs> you don't know these guys. And that was kind of pre-Amazon blowing yeah. up in the way it has a, as a, in the publishing marketplace. Now, guys, I know, go they, they'll they hear about a book, like they might hear about a book yep. on the uh, podcast. They'll go to Amazon. People who bought this book, bought this book, bought this book, and we recommend this. And guys will click on all of them and buy them, whether they read them or not. I don't always know. But they'll buy books. And so... Finally found a publisher, came out in print in 2003. So we're coming up on a 20th anniversary mm. and royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. And as yeah. you said, over 8,000 reviews on Amazon. So apparently men do buy self-help books and, <laughs> and do want and do want to grow and challenge and, you know, not make yeah. the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. So I think for the listeners out there, I'll have the link in the show notes. Just go to Amazon. No more Mr. Nice Guy. You'll be able to download it, listen to it and get it on Kindle. All of the above, yeah. Yep. You know, so I was asking the question, I mean, I've read a lot of books. I was asking the question to myself, why have I not read this book? And I went through and I, I've gone on the internet and looked at every different review I can find of it and try to understand what people are talking about, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, I definitely have been a nice guy all my life. And I was a particularly serious, nice guy when I was younger. And Basically, I had a, a drug addiction at a very young age, and I went into rehab first at Fairview Deaconess Hospital in Minnesota when I was 16. I came out of that rehab. Within four days, I was getting high again and ran away and basically decided I was going to live my life on my own. Luckily, my parents and the cops grabbed me and basically got me into a hospital called Baton Rouge General Hospital in Louisiana. And then I later went to another treatment center in outside of Cleveland, Ohio called New Directions, where I stayed for seven months in that treatment center. 
But I, I just was thinking about one memory I had when I was thinking about this discussion, and that was my counselor, Roland Mena. And he was a really great counselor down in Baton Rouge. And at one point, he had me stand up in the, in the group. So I've been through about 2,000 hours now of group therapy and individual therapy through all of this nearly a year in rehab. But he had me stand up and stand in front of a mirror. And he said, look at yourself. You know, you're almost six foot tall. You know, you're a, a big guy and, you know, all this. Why do you always look at yourself in such a, you know, small way? And really that, that started to help me. And then I started to learn about boundaries. I started to learn about standing up for myself. I started learning how to express myself and realizing the value of that and not, not to the other people. I mean, I, I do like the fact that people follow me or respect me when I stand up for what's important, but I also just saw that that's just so true to myself. And then what I find now is I'm older and I look back. And I see all these people get tangled up in messy situations. And I just think, why would they allow themselves to be treated that way? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of realized that all those times that I had in therapy and times in 12-step program now, it's been 40 years that I haven't had alcohol or drugs in my life. I realized that a lot of what I learned at that time was to stand up for myself. So I'm still a nice guy, but I'm not a nice guy in the sense that I don't give up my boundaries. So that's the reason right. why... I never really searched for the solution that you provide in this book. What do you think? Am I, am I confused? You, you sound very clear, actually. And actually, I began my personal recovery in a 12-step group as well. My then ex second wife said, you're a sex addict. You need yeah. to go. So I went to a 12-step group for sex addicts. Yep. Quickly found out I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But <laughs> I landed as a group of all men who they had some pretty gnarly stuff going on in their lives. I'm sure you've heard some gnarly stories yourself. Yep. And for the first time in my life, I began to be open and vulnerable and talking about things I had shame about and fear about, mm. guilt about, things I'd done, things I thought. And it was the most liberating thing I'd ever experienced. I grew up in a fundamental Christian church mm. where you hide everything, critical father, hide everything, angry feminism of the 60s and 70s, right. hide everything, don't be the bad man. And in 12 steps is where I really, be, it was my first step towards recovery. Yeah. And one of the things I love, and a person who's never done any kind of addiction recovery might be confused or bewildered. As you know, a lot of people, when they introduce themselves in a 12-step meeting, will say something like, I'm a grateful, recovering, fill in the blank, alcoholic, yep. drug addict. And an outsider is going to look at that and go, why would you say you're grateful for this thing that, you know, put you into treatment and put and ruined your life or broke this or, uh, and, you know, I'm a big believer in big sticks. And that may be partly what your podcast and books are about is the big sticks that wake us up and bring us into consciousness. An addiction can be that big stick where you just, you hit a low that you got to do something different yeah. and you go looking for answers and 12 step is, has been providing answers. Yeah. My book is a big stick to a lot of people, men and women, even though it's mm -hmm. written towards men, where men have been trying all their life and, and they're living out this paradigm, this roadmap that they think should work. And when it doesn't, they just keep trying harder, doing more of the same, like a good addict does. Yep. And then all of a sudden, the book, you know, one guy told me he was in a bookstore and the book fell off a shelf and hit him <laughs> on the head. And, I'm thinking, <laughs> and, you know, in this book, is the big stick. And I, so many guys will write me and said, Robert, I've read like every self-help book out there, gone to every, you know, mm. self-help personal growth seminar there is. And it wasn't till like how you laid out 
the nice guy syndrome and why it leads me to do the things that I do that I got my wake up call and it changes their life. I mean, it can literally turn a life around. So I'm a big fan of big sticks, whether it's addiction recovery, you know, finding God, realizing I I keep a relationship breakup, a major financial setback. The big sticks are what get us on a path of consciousness and consciousness. Best way to live. So next time that somebody says, you know, oh, I've got this terrible problem. We can say, oh, wow, what an exciting opportunity. Carl Jung used to say that, you know, people say, oh, I just got fired from a job or my wife said she wants a divorce. He'd get out of the bottle of champagne and go, great. But if the guy said, oh, I just got a promotion, he'd go, oh, it's too bad. Let's talk mm, about that. Because you know, you things there. Are, you're not going to learn stuff when things are going well. That's why, you know, I love, you know, without ever even listening to one of your podcast yeah. interviews, when you invited me to come do it, I thought, what a great idea is let people talk about their mistakes yep. and what they learned. And because, you know, what what else do we have? You know, Billy Joel has a song about suicide and he says, your your mistakes are the only thing you can really call your own. So, <laughs> you know, we got to go make a few mistakes if we want to yeah. learn anything. Nobody's going to go and claim those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, just to wrap up this, I just want to, you know, address the audience too. If you're facing any type of addiction. And I like to say that I was addicted to getting away. You know, sure. I was addicted to, to finding something that would get me away from the present reality. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be anything, you know? And so the point is, is that if you've got that type of problem, first of all, read this book. Number two, reach out for help. And there's 12 step programs all around, you know, the world. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. This um, is you and I, when we were chatting before we hit record, I imagine you hear lots of stories, not just, oh, I, I, I made a mistake investing in this bond or this property or this. My story does not sound like an investment story. And probably you hear a lot that aren't, but they're a mistake that was valuable and was helpful and we learned from. So my worst investment ever was buying a used pop-up camping trailer. (laughs) Now, again, I I don't think most people are going to think in terms of, wait a minute, we're not talking about investment uh, advice, but it was. Here's the situation. It's probably around 1992, early 90s. I was in my early to mid 30s in New a couple of years into my second marriage, I had a young son from my first marriage. My second wife had three kids and she was going to school and I was building my counseling practice. So, you know, a, a poor entrepreneur trying to, to make it go and pay off the expenses of a previous divorce. And so money was tight. And so, you know, our, our, our vacations were just camping. This is what my family did when I was a kid growing up. We'd go camping. And so, you know, I'd tent and we'd go camping and stuff. But I, I really wanted something that would accommodate the family, but I didn't have much money. So in my business, I occasionally people would pay me in cash. And so I, I'd make a note of it and then, you know, just kind of sock away the cash. And I just I decided I wanted to buy a camping trailer. And a pop-up trailer seemed like the best way to go. And I knew I couldn't afford a new one. So I started looking at Craigslist and, you know, classifieds and and found one and had saved up about a thousand dollars. And that was a lot of money yep. for me. That was a lot. 
And so I took my wife and we went to look at this particular trailer and it was kind of an older Coleman hard shelled pop up with, you know, the tent that comes up, it has a hard top on it. And it seemed like just what I was looking for. And it was older and used, but it wasn't terrible. And then, so we were talking, you know, I'm looking at it. I thought, oh, I could fix this up. I could put some new carpet in it and paint the inside. My wife and I could make some drapes and put in it. And, you know, this, this would work. This would give my family something to camp in. Well, when I was looking at the trailer, it was up and, you know, extended. We walk in and stuff. So we um, we talked and reached a deal and, you know, and I had my money and, and uh, you know, we're signing the off on the paper on it. And then they go to crank it down. It didn't have an electric, it had a, a manual crank. And as it was cranking, I don't remember if they cranked it or I did. I got an uneasy feeling. And, and that's the moral of the story is the uneasy <laughs> feeling. As it was going down, it didn't seem super smooth. It seemed a little jittery. And then when they finally got it down, they kind of had to push it a little bit to do the clamps. And, and again, I can't remember if I was the one cranking it and feeling it wasn't as smooth as it. But you know what? I'd already agreed and or we were already signing paper and I already was handing over money. And I really, really wanted a camping trailer for my family. I've been saving for it. Just was already visualizing the ways I could, you know, pimp it up and, you know, fix it up and, and the camping trips, but something just felt wrong. It just mm -hmm. felt wrong. And I overrode that. I overrode it. And so um, we pulled it home. We had a trailer hitch on the car, got it home, got it in the driveway and went to raise it. And it, it was kind of a challenge to get it raised up. And I, so I still was not feeling good. And then so we went to work, you know, putting a little money in, inside it, getting it fixed up. And finally, Memorial Day, United States Memorial Day weekend came along. We had some friends who had, who had a pop-up camper trailer as well. I'd forgotten about that. That was one of the reasons that I was motivated because they had one. They liked it. And I thought this would be great. And so, again, trying to get it back down in my driveway. And it took work, but I got it down, got the clamps to get it. And then we went out camping to the ocean, ocean shores in Washington State. And it rained all weekend long. It just poured rain all weekend. And, you know, of course, there were some leaks coming here and there in the trailer. And I'm already feeling like, did I make a mistake? Did I blow it? And then when it was time in the pouring rain to try to get it back down, it just, it was almost all I could do just to get the lid down. And I got home and put it in the garage and, you know, called, you know, dealerships. And, oh, we don't carry that part. You know, the the cogs, the the wheels that, that make it mm. go up and down. So it sat in my garage for a long time as a painful reminder of a not so much a bad investment, but not listening to my gut, not paying attention to my senses and what they were trying to tell me. Now, the good news is that we advertised it and somebody came and bought it for about half what I paid for it. I think mm. they'd gotten laid off and maybe were homeless and they were going to live in it. I said, well, I got to tell you, I'm going to be honest in ways that the other people were not. The cranking mechanism doesn't work well. Mm. And they go, we'll make it work. I go, okay, it's yours. So I sold it for probably half of what I paid. So that mm. was 30 years ago. And you know, that's been a valuable lesson in many ways, just in life in general, that to listen to my gut, to, you know, take advantage of opportunity when they come, but to not get so attached to a specific outcome that I override my senses. And then that was a big piece of it. I, I just really wanted a camper trailer bad. And right. so that's been 
it was worth the thousand dollars of pain I went through because I've made a lot of much better decisions since that time. Mm. And I always, I've learned to do a couple of things. Yep. Just listen to the intuitive sense within me. Does yep. it feel right? And then I will often check in with people who know me well and say, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm looking at. I get your feedback. Now, I used to over-research stuff. Now I, mm. I make a decision pretty quick. But like, for example, I, I hired a financial advisor about four or five years ago. He was at one of my workshops and he said, Robert, you've helped me a lot. I want to help you because I, I wanted to set up a 401k and get, get my finances moving forward. And so I did all my due diligence and I got my wife and I on an airplane. She doesn't speak English, mm. flew from Puerto Vallarta to Mexico to San Francisco. I wanted her to meet him mm. because I trust her intuitive gut right. feel. And so I've learned to both trust my own gut and to bring along people with me that aren't going to be swayed by my, oh, I'm caught up in the, the shininess of it. Now, right. Kind of bring it fast forward to this year. I bought an RV <laughs> this year. I wasn't looking for one. I actually just Googled. I'd rented a Mercedes Sprinter van to go camping in the desert with friends mm -hmm. in California. And so I just Googled up in Seattle where my mother still lives and where my wife and I usually go camping is up in Washington state. What does a used Sprinter van cost? So I, I put in 2016 Mercedes Sprinter van. And the first thing that came up was this Winnebago RV on a Sprinter van chassis. 2016. I'm looking. That's beautiful. I thought I wasn't looking for anything like that. Oh, Google's amazing. But, but the price <laughs> of it, you know, once all said and done, I bought it for eighty six thousand dollars. A new one is two hundred thousand. I bought it sight unseen. It was that a woman had owned it, traded it in for a smaller version at a car dealership up in Seattle. The guy said, shoot me some videos. He shot videos, sent me the Mercedes report that had it taken in. I look at it and I go, everything, the gut, my gut said, buy it. Yeah. And I think it's one of the best investments. I've mm. been camping in it this summer. I can see, you know, as, as my wife's kids get older and we have more time to travel. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's just perfect. We've yeah. been camping in it, love every bit about it. And then one other little piece, I try to stay debt free. I bought a house here in Mexico six years ago, paid it off in three years. If I buy a car, I pay cash, everything I pay cash. And so I saw this RV. I thought, well, I don't really want to take 86 grand out of my bank account. So I asked about financing. And the guy said, well, well, let me know. I'll get back to you. And they said, all right, we'll finance it for six years at four and a half percent interest. And I thought, that's a no brainer. Yeah. I tell my financial advisor and he goes, inflation, seven percent and climbing. He said, that's yeah. like free money. Yeah. So so I actually financed something that is against my general principle, but it made sense as a good financial decision yeah. because my dollars in six years are going to be worth a lot less than they are to me right now. So. I don't need to but I, I'd also assume that if you uh, if you finance something, that means there's a third party that's got to kind of look at the reliability of this thing. Is is this asset really worth what it's worth? I, of course I don't know they do, because they're going to end up with it if I don't make exactly. The so, so you so brought a third party in, in a sense. Brought a with third that. party in, and, yeah. and took my wife to you know when we went up to to, to look at it. Well, yeah. actually, I'd already bought it, or even yeah. looked at it, or drove it. Yeah. And uh, it, just, it it felt right based on the mistakes I'd made 30 years prior. Yeah. So let me, maybe I'll summarize some of the things I take away from this. I think one of the lessons that I've learned is originally I, I understood feelings, 
but I didn't understand intuition until I did this podcast. And what I've learned from interviewing 600 people now is that intuition is one of the most important things that we have to prevent ourselves from doing the wrong thing. Now, of course, we can get misled by intuition, mm -hmm. but intuition is not feeling in the sense that we feel good or we feel confident or we feel afraid or something. Intuition is just a momentary emotional kind of impulse that we get that's like a perception of something. And one of the lessons that I've learned, I think you reiterate this, is that it's important for all of us to try to raise our awareness of intuition, because that is the first indication of something is good, bad, or whatever. Yeah. That's the first thing. Second thing is you mentioned the word attachment. And one of the things about living in a Buddhist country is that, you know, in Buddhism, it's about not getting attached to anything. Everything it's the, it's is the cause of all suffering. Yeah, exactly. And so everything falls away. And so I've really spent a lot of time myself trying to make sure that I'm not attached to any objects, even relationships. I think about, you know, I live with my mother lives with me here. And we are obviously attached as a mother son. But you know, this is all just part of life. Life is just a flow. And we're, we're in the middle of it. Things come and go and don't try to hold them too tightly. There's a great rock song I remember that says that what you wanted to control, you know, you lose. Uh, I forgot the name of the band, but I'll, it, I'll remember. It was, it was the police. Yeah. If you love something, let it go. Yeah. 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 And then the last one I, I wrote down was talk. You know, I wrote down talk slash research and that's another thing that's really important when you're going into a decision, talk to some people about it. And I have a trusted group of people that I would call, I would say, you know, they're, they're interested in my well-being, but man, they're critical. And I got, I got a particular friend of mine, he's just a real, real critical guy when it comes to these types of decisions. And I call him and I ask him, what do you think about this? And a lot of times he'll just rip it apart. And then all of a sudden I'll start to think differently about it. So three lessons that I take away and I think the listeners can take away. Number one, listen to your intuition. Number two, don't get too attached to anything because it can drive us to do silly things. And number three is talk to someone before you act. And I'll just tell a quick story, Robert. I got out of treatment, my first treatment center, and I went to a 12-step program and I got a sponsor and he says, here's my number, you know, call me, you know, anytime that you feel you need to talk. So four days later, I was smoking pot in my parents' house. I was waiting for them to leave for the evening and I had acquired some pot and I couldn't even wait until they left the house. I had to smoke it. And so I was in my sister's room at that point, nobody was in there. And I started getting high right then. And that was my relapse, my first relapse. And then I called my, my sponsor and I told him what happened. He says, you idiot, you're supposed to call me before you, <laughs> not after. And so call and talk to a friend before you make the decision. Anything else that you would add to that? Oh man, I, I, I love those three talking points. I'm trained. I got my, my public speech training in debate in high school. And then I was a minister for eight years. So I love how you just broke it down and just a nice, easy to follow outline right there. Yeah. yeah the, the intuition, I think will tell you when something's wrong and it'll tell you when something's right. It told me something was wrong with the pop-up trailer. It told mm -hmm. me something's right with the Winnebago. 
Yeah. And it was right both times. I listened to it once. I didn't the other time and I paid a price. And yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Buddhist principles of impermanence and and mm. attachments the cause of all suffering. Yep. But suffering is also the path to all joy. So how, <laughs> how these mistakes we've made that have caused us to suffer can be transmuted into joy and into yeah. better decisions. Yep. So and true. yeah, have a wisdom council that you go to when you have to make important decisions. That's a good a good name for it, a wisdom council. I remember giving a, a presentation about one of my businesses my coffee business that my best friend and I have here in Thailand. It's a factory and all that. And we were asked to give a speech to the American Chamber of Commerce. And I said, I would like to introduce you to our board of advisors. And I said, here's Stephen Covey. Here's Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Here is, and I went through some of the most, here's Brian Tracy. Here's some of the most famous people in the world. And they wondered how the hell did you build that advisory council? Mm -hmm. And then I showed all the books that they wrote. And I said, we've read all of these, we've studied them, we've listened to what these guys have said, and a lot of what we do is coming from their book. We never talked to them. So I think I'm gonna to have to add you to my advisory council now and show your book and show your ideas. Now, let's think about a young person right now who's facing a decision and they're going into this decision somewhat similar to what you went into. Based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate. Yeah, especially a young person going into something new, you have no way of knowing mm. what you're getting into. You have no way of knowing what's on the other side of, you know, the consequences, costs, you know, benefits even. You just have no way of knowing. And yeah, start building a wisdom council when you're 16. And I had some good people in my life I'm grateful for. I, I, Mrs. Kalberg was one of those people. She went to the church I went to. Her and her husband had successfully built a, a very good business, and she'd bought rental homes in the community of Bellevue, Washington, now where Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos yeah. live. So those rental homes, long ago, they've got tall skyscrapers on them. But she used to have me come work with her to clean them, to paint them, to help fix them up. And she would just give me, she'd ask me questions about my life and about where I was going and about girls I dated. And just, she was, you know, a good listening ear who every now and then, just by the questions she would ask, <laughs> she didn't have to even tell me. Anything. She'd take it down the a path and then she'd leave the you there to think about yeah, it. Yeah, the questions would just help me see what might be on the other side of a path I was going down. Mm. So, um, yeah, find somebody who can ask you the right questions. Let you make your own mistakes because that's, again, how we learn. Yep. But, you know, give you enough rope to give you leeway, but not enough that you hang yourself. So, yep. so build build a wisdom council. And, it, and it's not it's usually not your friends who are just as stuck and clueless as you are. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about, you know, and I want to think that for, for a young person, let's say you're 16, as you said, to build a wisdom council at a young age, pick the person that you see around you that you admire the most outside of your friends and family, maybe someone's father, maybe a, a teacher, maybe something. And then seriously, from today, go to them and ask them, I am forming a wisdom council because I want to be better in my life. And I would like you to be part of it. It doesn't require a lot. Just occasionally, I'm going to ask you, a question and get your advice. Would you be willing to do that? And yeah. you'd be surprised how much people are willing to give to young people, students, that type of thing. And 
you will be able to build that. And what a great piece of advice, really. I wish I had had the guts to do that and had the knowledge to do that. So I think that's a great one. I'm grinning from ear to ear hearing you say that. What what if every 16-year-old kid had two or three people that, you know, have learned from their mistakes and they're wise and could just give them feedback when, oh man, yeah. what, what, what a difference that would make. Lots of gold in that, in that recommendation. So what's I, a I res- what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners besides a wisdom council? Yeah. Well, well that's off the table, right? I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't recommend that. You know, you and I have both hit on some of the Buddhist stuff and mm. I don't, I don't identify as a Buddhist. I don't identify as religious and I do have two degrees in religion, but mm. I, I don't identify as religious, but I would say, take some time. Well, tell, here's a resource. Mm. Go buy some books by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Vietnamese monk just passed away in this yep. last year, but he was nominated for Nobel peace award by Martin Luther King Jr. Was instrumental in the peace movement during the Vietnam War. And just, yeah, just just go buy a book or two, any book by Thich yep. Nhat Hanh. And, you know, I, don't ask me to spell it. Yeah, <laughs> I have I'll put it in the show notes. It, put Thich Nhat Hanh in the show notes. I, I'm just so grateful that that man lived. Yeah, yeah. Great, great advice. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> mm. Over the last year or so, I, I kind of toyed with the idea of, of maybe semi-retirement until uh, I got some really harebrained ideas to create my legacy. And and I decided I'm in for another 20 years. I've committed. The last 20 years of my life have been great. My, my mom's 87. I'm 66. So I, she's still alive and ticking. She's sharp. And I got, I got 20 more good years. Yeah. So I, I am building my legacy. I'm building a membership community that I hope to make available to every man on the planet, no matter age, income, where they can find tribe, community, resources. I'm going to put everything I've ever written, recorded, Mm -hmm. talked about, interviewed in it, give people a curated path to mastery in different areas of life. And I've got several of my certified coaches on board helping me build it. It's, It's a monster. Interesting. And while I'm doing that, I'd love to finish three more books that I'm working on. One of them, including a five book series for boys and teenagers about how to apply the kind of stuff we're talking about. Mm, Yeah. If only we had learned some of these things at a young age. That sounds great. And when you have that link for the community, let's put it in the show notes so that people can come and and check it out and see. That's fascinating. I think communities are such a valuable thing these days. You know, it's, it's harder to connect with people. And so I think this is super, super valuable. Well, Listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now. As we conclude, Robert, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? <laughs> no, Andrew, just thank you. This has been fun. We appreciate it. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.